This episode is sponsored by Interactive Brokers. Did you know that Interactive Brokers charges margin loan rates from 4.83% to 5.83%? Their clients can also enjoy earning extra income by lending their fully paid shares of stock. Join Interactive Brokers clients from more than 200 countries and territories to invest in stocks and options, futures, funds, and bonds globally. Minimize your costs to maximize your returns. Rate subject to change. Learn more at ibkr.com slash compare. The Disciplined Investor is all about you, your money, and the markets. Sit back and get ready for this edition of the Disciplined Investor Podcast. This episode of The Disciplined Investor is sponsored by Horowitz & Company. If you're looking for a portfolio manager, look no further. Horowitz & Company, from seed through harvest, cultivating financial success. CPI hits the bullseye, perfectly in line with expectations. Optimism returns, markets on the move, and earnings season starts right now. Our guest today is Alex Shahadi from Evoke Advisors. All this and much more on episode number 799 of the Disciplined Investor Podcast. Welcome to another episode of the Disciplined Investor Podcast. Hey, it's Andrew Horowitz. I'm here in the seat talking to you like we do every week, talking about finances and investing and markets and things that are important in the area of money because, you know, at the end of the day, of course, it's all about health. But the truth of the matter is that money does also provide us some good mental health when we have enough to provide for ourselves and we feel comfortable with what we have for the future. Now, a lot of people are really concerned about money. A lot, a lot of times there are people that you can you know, compulse about it. You, you, you're overwhelmed about the vernacular, the lingo, the, the vocabulary that's used in the area of finance. And that's what we try to do here is streamline it, make it a little easier, make it understandable because there is way too much to know about when it comes to investing that you should have that really can be, I don't want to say simple, but simplified. Things that maybe shouldn't be so difficult. And this, you know, the words that are used, we talked about on DH Unplugged this week, which I do each and every week with John C. Dvorak on Tuesday nights and uh, release it for all the podcast apps that night as well. Uh, we talked about, you know, what's a soft landing? What's a hard landing? What's meant by this? Why do they talk like this in basis points rather than half a percent? It's nothing more to make some people look really smart, I think, and at the same time, confuse others. I think there's really a lot of that going on. And, and I'll be honest with you, I like to try to keep it simple. I mean, why not? If we can keep things simple, why complicate things? And there's so many different ways that things can be complicated when it comes to the capital markets or making that even easy, the stock markets, the, the, the corporations, the companies that we're looking at out there to invest in. You know, whether it's, it's, it's an Apple or whether it's a... Uh, uh, Starbucks or whether it's uh, Crocs, I don't care, you know, whatever you want to look at, right? And the thing is that 
when it comes to valuing a stock, how much is this stock worth? How much is this co you know, company worth? What, what am I going to pay for this? It's really no different than any other product out there. Now, a, a pair of sneakers that maybe would last a week because it's made poorly to a pair of sneakers that may last two years will probably have a different price tag on it to buy it. And what are we looking at there? Two components. We're looking at the value proposition of something that we can buy and the confidence we have that this will do something for us. And if both of those things are high, we could probably say that we're willing to pay a little bit more money for it. The same is true when it comes to stocks. And in the valuation game, when we're looking at stocks, we could probably look at a range of fundamental data points that will give us a really good understanding of what the company does from profitability to how management uh, works and, 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 and how efficient they are, the books and records in terms of, well, what's the assets versus liabilities, the net value of the company, the net worth, if you will, shareholders, equity, all these things we can look at. But in the end, in the end, when it comes to looking at a stock and what is it valued at, in the end, it's earnings. It's earnings that matter the most, in my opinion, because really what we're looking at, what is this company going to be able to do? Now, not every single company is based on earnings. We look at banks, for example. We look at book value as, as a part of the process. We look at, for example, utilities or real estate. It's about cash flow. It's about how much money they bring in. But for everybody else, mostly when we're looking at companies, we want to know, okay, what is the earning power of this company long-term and how do we value that? So what I think we do is we take two components. It's the idea of earnings of a company, the profitability, and in the end, it's the, the um, addition to that of our confidence that their earnings will grow over time. And that confidence is expressed as a multiple. We can put that multiple on a company's earnings, like you hear of, you know, how many times earnings or the EPS or the PE ratio. We could utilize these components and look at what is a general valuation of this company or better yet, what is the valuation of a group of companies? Now, confidence is a major issue that is a little bit softer than the actual earnings because we know what the earnings are. They're a hard number. We look at them. The bottom line is this minus this plus that, and we got the earnings, right? Divided by the amount of shares that are outstanding, we have the earnings per share. Okay, we know that. However, confidence is a little bit of a squishy number. Eh, confidence, what does that mean? Well, confidence can be expressed in the multiple. Confidence is a multiple either increaser, multiplier, or a slasher, as companies are not expected to keep up with growth or whether or not companies will, in fact, continue to do so. And at a time when we have tightening financial conditions, you would expect that the expectation for growth, the confidence that companies will be able to grow a lot more in the future is less than what it was. And we have to put that in the equation. And when you hear the analysts on CNBC and other financial shows, they're often asked to predict the year-end value of one index or another. And we have a table that I wanted to discuss with you. We talked about this on DH Unplugged, but to give you a little bit of insight into 
where we are now with the S&P 500 approaching 4,000 again, which is unbelievable, and looking at the two components, the earnings per share expectations of what they will do and what companies will earn next year, and the confidence or the multiplier factor that is being used, which gets us to the value of where the S&P 500 is right now. So I put this table on the website, the show notes, very simple table, uh, for episode number 799 over on thedisciplinedinvestor.com. By the way, if you want to get more information on how we manage money and what we do and how we help clients just like you, you can go over to The Disciplined Investor. We have multiple strategies, multiple ways to work with us from as little as 10000 minimum to our uh, core, which is 500000 So there's a 10000 minimum, a $50,000 minimum with the managed growth strategy, and then our global allocations has about a $500,000 minimum, uh, which is, you know, uh, around that area. We'll, we'll, depending on, if you're close enough, we'll, we'll say that's fine. Um, now, the interesting thing about this table, if you're looking at it, if not, I'll talk you through it, is that we're looking at S&P earnings estimates. And I listed just three. I listed $220 per share moving forward, $225 a share, and $230. What is that? That is the totality of all of the earnings per share for S&P 500 companies out a year from now. The projected earnings for the next year. So what do we have? When we're looking at this, what do we actually have? Well, we came from a $215 level. That was the total S&P 500 earnings last year. And now, even as conditions are tightening this year, expectations are that the EPS earnings per share for the S&P is going to grow to $225 a share. Now, think about that just for a moment. Spend just a moment pondering a tightening economic backdrop. You could say, well, if we didn't have all this, maybe we would have done $235, you know, like a 10% increase. But, you know, analysts had brought it down to only 225 is the expectation, so it's a little bit higher than it was, but still, it's growth. Also, there's interest that during recessionary times, times when we see economic slowdowns, whether necessarily labeled an official recession or whether it's just a slowdown of economic activity, usually you see that multiples come down dramatically. In recessions, we often see Multiples cut to, I don't know, below 15. But for simplicity of things, let's, for that, let's, let's just say, again, keeping it simple, anywhere from 15 to 17 in modern day times. Reality is that forward EPS is usually about 17, 17.5 on average during good times or, or not even good times, non-recessionary times. But here we are going into what most would consider a slowdown. And you can see that by companies with their discussions of layoffs and their concern about outlook and their dropping of their of their uh, revenue and, and earnings expectations. And all you have to do is look at the table to know that someone's math is, well, it's, it's off. Something's not right. The truth is that somewhere in between this fantasy that we have continuing growth over time, which could happen, but the Odds of that happening with the backdrop of a war in Russia, the fact that China still has COVID issues, the supply chain still has some disruptions, inflation is where it is, interest rates as high as they are and possibly moving higher. All these things 
don't necessarily signify that the economic backdrop is such that we can sustain growth at a level forever. It's got to slow down eventually. And when you look at the table, you see that I put from 220 to 230, 225 right in the middle. I multiplied it by various multiples, kept it simple, 15, 16, 17, that's all. Saying 17 maybe on the outside. If in fact we do hit $230 per share, and if in fact we have a 17 multiple, 39.10, 39.10 is the multiplied result of those two of where the S&P 500 should be in a year from now. Not today, but a year from now. So, okay, all right, we'll forward look it and say, yeah, it's good. Whatever that is, is good. We'll hold that. But the reality is if we keep up with where the analysts are today, and we even say by some great reason, confidence will maintain and 17 will be the PE. If we take 225, we multiply it by 17, we get 3825 or a three, three and a half percent overvalue of where we are on the S&P 500 today, even though this is a year outlook. If we drop it down to a 16 multiple, say there's some concern, and we still say 225, somehow magically we get that to that level, we're 10% overvalued from a year out from where we are now. So in other words, very overvalued. If we say, well, we drop down to where a 15 multiple at still 225, we're 17% overvalued. Anyway, take a look at that. Understand that what goes into the process of valuing a company is a lot more than just the simplicity we're talking about here today. But really, we can break it down to some very easy terms and things to look at, such as the confidence in the outlook of the company's ability to maintain a profit and profit growth in the future vis-a-vis earnings. And on top of that, we can look at the earnings and expectations, put those together and come out with where we should be in a very big picture world. Right now, we're dealing with the S&P 500. Of course, individual stocks, much different, much different discussion because we have to break those down similarly to a degree, but also we look at that differently. But when we know that about 80% of a stock's variation and return component is made up of the index that it is a part of, we could say that there is some push and pull by the index. And if the indices are overvalued at this level right now, and if there's some concern, eh, it's something to think about as we go into the first half of the year. Now, before we get to a guest, which is coming up in a short second, I'm going to bring him on. I want to talk about interactive brokers. And in, in particular, I want to talk about IBKR Event Trader. IBKR Event Trader offers a new way to trade futures. That's what it is, because you could use event contracts to trade your opinion on a yes or no basis. Basically, it's a, you know an outcome of, of will something do this or will it do that? Yes or no? That's the question you have to ask. You look at key CME futures markets, including equity indices and energy, metals, foreign currencies. And you simply say, we'll do this or that. For example, will the price of gold close above $2,000 today? Yes or no? And you put down your investment on that particular notion, which could be a hedge on the rest of your portfolio, for example, or maybe moving into an event like the jobs numbers or a Fed meeting. And then you could take a position daily 
on potential price movements and gain exposure while you limit risk. You'll know what your risk factor is. What I want you to do is learn more about this event trader. Go to eventtrader.interactivebrokers.com. Interactive event trader, uh, interactive brokers event trader. Uh, really interesting way to look at futures. And our guest today is Alex Shahidi, and he is a CIO, co-CIO, and managing partner at Evoke Advisors. And this is a big firm. They have like, you know, billions, like $22 billion in assets and a lot of people working there. And we're going to get a lot of great insight in it. Alex um, has, a, has a great depth of knowledge. He has a lot of certifications. We just talked about that offline a little bit. CFA, CMA, uh, CIMA, uh, CFP, CLU, all sorts of great things has uh, been spotlighted by Barron's Magazine is one of the top 100 independent financial advisors. Um, he also uh, graduate, graduated from uh, University of California, which we're not going to hold against him, uh, Santa Barbara, uh, degrees in business and eco, and um, also went to uh, Hastings Law School and is a licensed attorney in California. Um, so, uh, Alex, welcome. Appreciate you Thank you for here. having me. Yeah, Great so to be here. You have lots. Of, by the way, th this list goes on. This whole, this whole, you got books under your belt. We'll put some links on the website under episode 799, by the way, over on the disciplineinvestor.com, uh, how to get his books. You got several books that you wrote. You're just moving, young guy, moving and grooving. So what do you think, uh, let's just start with uh, just this, this, I guess, you know, you've, you've been around, you, you got a lot of depth of knowledge. You have a lot of, uh, of, of understanding from doing it. You have a lot of understanding from, let's call it the books, if you will, right? Because you got all the cred. What's with this market? I mean, in terms of, I don't mean the market itself, right? I mean, the, the is this, are we still in the let's get rich quick uh, kind of thing? Or is that gone and back to fundamentals? Or what, what are you seeing here? Uh, it's interesting. The, the get rich quick, that whole notion seems to cycle through just like many things in the markets. Uh, when, when you have an upswing, then the focus is get rich quick. And when things start going sideways or down, then it's more about how do I protect myself? And I feel like this is just another one of those. We saw the same thing in the late 90s and then that reversed. 2007, it reversed again. Uh, 2020 reversed for a very short period of time and then uh, back to the races with all the stimulus. And it seems like that's just happening again. So that's just market psychology, you know, fear and greed playing out. Yeah, so it's interesting. I, I talked about at the um, at the first part of the show, which, which you haven't heard, uh, you know, the idea of, of where are we from a fundamental standpoint and how do you value this market? And you talked about a variety of confidence factors and things of that nature and looking at expectations. It, it seems a little bit interesting to me that there's so much excitement that is focused on the Fed right now and um, fundamentals be damned. Well, I mean, the Fed took center stage last year, right? Because you came into the year, you know, highest inflation in 40 years. The Fed had been very stimulative before that post-COVID and probably too much for too long, highest inflation of 40 years. And you had this massive tightening environment that you haven't, you, you've actually never seen interest rates move that fast in that short of a time period. You know, they're raising 75 basis points every meeting. Um, and if you go back for decades, uh, it was more of a measured approach. We're going to raise rates a quarter point here, a quarter point there. This was just in hyperdrive. And that was just in response to the highest inflation in 40 years. So that is what drove markets last year. It wasn't really how the economy was doing. Uh, inflation was kind of gradually coming down. It's expected to go back to normal and, uh, as is growth. Uh, but it was the Fed that was driving everything. 
And, and that it kind of makes sense. You know, when cash goes from zero to it's heading to about 5% or so, every asset competes with cash. And, you know, the stock market over a hundred years has earned something like six or 7% above cash. When cash is zero, you should expect six or seven out of stocks. When cash jumps to five, it should be like 11 or 12 to compensate you for taking that risk. And when it moves very quickly, you know, from zero to five, everything has to reprice lower to compete with cash. So that was, the, that was all that really mattered last year. And now this year, it may be very different. And, and we'll get to that in a second. But that's, that's basically what happened last year. Yeah. So, and, and then, you know, we had these weird, the last number of years, these one-offs, right? The 60-40 portfolio, it's like, you know, one out of uh, six, six, six out of a hundred times we've seen a negative 60-40 over the last hundred years, right? So, uh, you know, six, six times, six, uh, maybe seven times, but over the last 100 years, 100 years, 60-40 portfolio, bonds, worst performing bond, the, the Barclays, uh, like ever, right? You know, ever. And which, which makes some sense, by the way. You know, you go from a zero to a 2%, that's a hard, that, that's an incalculable jump, right? You that's know, you right. Can't, what, what percent is that? It's like a lot. You know, it's, it's, <laughs> it's, how do you calculate that, right? So, that's right. So, um, what we have now is the idea that, okay, there's inflation. Is it as bad as, is, is it worse than, is it, okay, whatever it is, is it going to end? Eventually it's going to end. Inflation ends eventually all the time because you have comparatives against other inflated prices. So unless you're a third world country with a devaluing currency and, um, you know, a, a dictators and all that, let's, let's, that's not the case. Okay, so what we have is a situation where the rate of a change of inflation over time is going to be compared to other times. So the year over year is going to start getting better and better if, in fact, we don't see a big rise in rates, however, or a big rise in prices. However, we're still stuck with the high cost. We're still stuck with the high prices. How do we reconcile that? Well, I mean, that's the, that's the big question. I mean, if you go back to the 70s, that's probably the closest analog to what we're potentially heading into. You, you know, inflation had, had never been high. It, it started going up in the early 70s. And the view was, okay, this is transitory. It's going to come back down on its own. And the Fed wasn't overly aggressive. And, and so it started to rise. And then they tightened. It fell. They eased. It rose more. And you went back and forth, back and forth for a decade. And inflation averaged seven percent for ten years, and in that environment, in in, in that nineteen seventies environment, stocks underperformed cash. You would have been better off literally having your money in in a money market fund for ten years in in the stock market, and and cash outperformed bonds as well. Both stocks and bonds underperformed cash for mm. a decade, mm. and and so you could this could persist for a while because you get this back and forth in in. And the Fed's response to higher inflation. Mm -hmm. High inflation is just a very difficult thing for a Fed um, to manage or central bank to manage because to fight inflation, you raise rates, but then that slows growth. And if growth gets too weak, then you lower rates. And then that fuels inflation and you go back and forth. So that, to me, that's the big question is, is inflation going to naturally decline over a reasonable time frame on its own? Or does it take higher rates? And if it takes higher rates, what'll that, what will that do to growth? And then what will be the response to the weak growth environment? And are we going to repeat the 70s or not? Problem is that the Fed has, has engineered a, an increasing rate environment after trying to make up for their various mistakes, which I would say is pretty much everything they've done over the last 20 years that I could see. 
But nonetheless, uh, when we look at when we look at the the uh, the outlook, listen. When you water your lawn, it takes time for it to grow. If you shut the water off, the lawn still stays growing for a while, doesn't it? Nice and green. It okay. starts to turn a beigeish color and maybe even start to die off, turning into a, a hay field weeks and weeks and weeks after. You know, it takes a while. And then if you start watering again, you're like, oops. Now, by the way, this, this story is, is really happening at my house right now <laughs> where, where uh, you know, I had a, I had a, I'm like, wait, who turned the sprinklers to three minutes every two days? That's not going to do anything. I'm in California. We get to oh. water a lawn once once a week. Right. So I know exactly. What so you're you know what I'm saying. About. So so the point is, it takes a while for all this to really feed into things. And I want to talk about not only the economy because the economy can move in various weird ways. It's big. It's bulky. It's stimulus. It's money going in from government spending in various places, and the dollar has a lot to do with it. Companies are laying off a lot of people, not showing up in the unemployment numbers as we saw 3.5 percent last week, which was like almost unholy, to be honest with you. You know, people are like, huh? And then we have a lot of commentary from places like retail, like Lululemon, like Macy's, that things aren't so good. Now, we're starting off earnings season. We'll see how that goes, you know, when we start really amassing a lot of information. Do you think that this is going to feed into the corporate environment in terms of earnings over the next, let's say, six months? Yeah, I feel like it has to. Uh, but But the point you made earlier is exactly right. Um, it takes time for the tightening to take hold in the economy. Um, and I think one of the big surprises last year is how quickly the Fed has, has uh, aggressively raised rates. Mm -hmm. If you go back over years and years and years, it's been a much more measured approach. Raise a little bit, see what the response is, and then raise some more if needed or pause. And same thing on the downside. This time, it, it's all, it almost feels like they are reacting to uh, overreact their overreaction on the downside. You had COVID hit and they threw the kitchen sink at it and kept it going way, way after the points, especially in hindsight, it's obvious for way too long. You, you, know, my, you, my thought is Alex? you know my thought? Yes. I'd love to hear it. I'll tell you what it is. It's a giant experiment. I'm not a, contra <laughs> a, a, a conspiracy guy. It's a giant experiment and they got the yeah. cover to do so. They got the cover to do so within the air. You know, can we do, you know, modern mo uh, monetary policy and, you know, with this whole idea of of of, of, of ramp up debt, because we haven't even talked about the fact that $8 trillion on the balance sheet of the Fed yet, but ramp up debt, not pay it back, somehow figure out a way to just, you know, unleash fiscal stimulus alongside of monetary stimulus. And they could do so very well with nobody even complaining at all during COVID because it was necessary, right? Okay. Now it's like, hey, we have to pull it back. Let's see if we could do something different. This is the only chance they had to do this experiment in real time in order to see if it could be used in the future. What are your thoughts on yeah. that? Yeah, no, that's absolutely right. And you can only get away with that when you're the world's reserve currency. Mm -hmm. If you're if you're an emerging economy, you can't do that. You'll your your economy will collapse, all the money will flee out of your economy, your currency will collapse. Right. And right. and so in some ways, we're effectively taking advantage of the privilege of being the world's reserve currency. And ultimately you lose that by abusing it. And, and, you know, the, the goal here is to keep the party going as long as we can. It's an over indebted economy. Government has too much debt. Households have too much debt. Uh, you know, corporations have too much debt. It's lower than it was, but it's still way too high when you just add up all the debt in the economy. Mm -hmm. And, and that causes problems 
And to keep that party going, you just keep stimulating. You, you send out checks with money you don't have. You print more money. Uh, keep interest rates as low as you can. And it seems like a lot of that is coming back to bite. And now you've got the highest inflation and there, it's an aggressive response to it. And who knows how that's going to play out. You know, when I looked at some of the returns uh, from 2022, last week's show, we talked about a look back to look ahead. Like, let, let's see where we were just so we can get an idea maybe where we're going. And one of the things that, that stuck out to me was the fact that European stocks and emerging market stocks, you know, the, the indices actually did as well as or even better in a, in a, uh, better than negative, right? Uh, last year than the U.S. S&P 500. Yeah. And this is a situation where we have a concern about energy being a big issue in Europe, right? Uh, you got Hail Mary here saved by supposedly warm weather coming to the winter, which I don't really understand how they can predict the entire winter from the beginnings here, but okay, I'll go with it. Uh, you know, and, and they have a war there. They have uh, an issue with the economy to begin with, and they have all this going on. And they, they managed to pull out a little bit better than we did. Maybe it was because they didn't aggressively hike as much as we did, but they're starting to do so. So when we look at the idea of a global backdrop, right? Um, equities we're talking about primarily here. Is there, is this the year that we're going to be like, yes, emerging markets finally outperformed, you know, on the upside, right? Uh, you know, that everybody's been waiting. Everybody's been talking about it for years. My friend Med Faber, get into, you know, foreign. You don't want to, you know, the, you know, you have your country biases. You have all your home country bias, all this, all this stuff. You got to get overseas. Is this the year that maybe it happens after trying to, to hope and pray that would for the last five? It seems to, but you know, the, the thing that is driving these things is that there is a very powerful and resilient mean reverting tendency in markets. And if you just kind of zoom out and you look at uh, geographic uh, returns uh, for equities over even a hundred years, and you look at it even by decade, you'll see this constant shift in leadership. People forget in the 2000s. So the last decade, U.S. was the place to be. The prior decade, the U.S. was one of the worst places to be. I think the S&P averaged something like negative one or negative 2% a year for 10 years. So, and that was because the, the tech bubble and bust and, 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 you know, the financial crisis and so on. And, and so you're going to get a reversal. It, the U.S. is not constantly going to outperform because what happens is when it does well, it gets priced for perfection looking forward. There's all this optimism discounted. Uh, the sector allocation changes. It got really heavy uh, in technology. And eventually those things mean revert. So it seems like you're starting to see that happen. And obviously we won't know the answer until we, you know, fast forward, you know, five or 10 years, but it does feel like that, that rotation that is going to naturally happen is already in process. Yeah. We saw it finally with value beating growth by a, by a mile last year and starting off with uh, obviously the big influence on that was energy. And uh, the idea that maybe there is something to be said for a safe mode equity strategy, which you know, push yourself into what utilities and well, push you away from technology, biotechs, high growth names and into, you know, the banks, maybe if the yield curve ever gets normalized, uh, and, you know, in energy and utilities and staples, uh, that side of things, which was more of the normal, quote unquote, normal way to invest during different times. It's interesting during COVID, that was all thrown out the window. That was that that whole theory was turned on its head. Yeah. And, and I think if you if you take a look at the environment that we lived in 
prior to last year and where we are today, it's complete. It's almost the opposite. You had, you know, zero interest rates, constant stimulus, and that encourages risk-taking and some of the riskier market segments did the best. You saw things like crypto and so on just go through the roof. And now the environment is one of tightening, uh, reducing liquidity, higher interest rates, uh, you know, potentially a bad recession around the corner. It's a very different environment. And that gets manifested in the returns that you see in markets. And it's almost like the things that did the worst before are doing the best now and vice versa. And you see it in a lot of different areas. How many more couches can I buy? You know, how many more barbecues do I need? Now, there may be a barbecue cycle that comes around that every three, five years. So we'll come up on that. But I got to tell you something. Back in COVID, you talk about things are different. Back then, we were smoking all sorts of meats because you're not going out anywhere, right? So we're smoking all sorts of meats. I stocked up on, uh, seriously, this is terrible, but I stocked up on cases of potato chips. Because I, I did a tasting of all the different kettle cook, cooked potato chips, kept them in the office, ate them with the, the the short ribs that we made all the time, and the spare ribs, and the I mean the ribs and the and 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 the briskets, and we would it was it was like nuts. It was like you know if you had the uh, opportunity, you would buy ten of whatever it was. You didn't know if you were going to get it again, right? Right. Here we are, exactly the opposite. It's like you know what I don't need anymore. I want to maybe do things I haven't done, like maybe some of the experiential traveling, things like that. But it, it's a much different environment, right? For sure. I mean, all, all these things have this mean reverting tendency. If you, if you overdo one thing, you're going to get sick of it and you're not going to want to do, not even back to even, you want to go below average. And you get this, it's like a pendulum that swings. It happens in markets, it happens in life, it kind of happens across the board. Yeah, I got you. I want to switch up and talk to you about the idea of a, a, a so... So I've been talking on this show before you got on. The, the opening discussion was like, keep it simple. Simple math. Let's keep it. Forget about all the fun names and the things. And, you know, why does somebody say 50 basis points? Why the hell can't they say half a percent? I don't understand. You know, or, you know, call it the capital markets. Call it stocks. I mean, what you know, let, let's keep it simple. So there's something I want you to simplify for me. And this is the idea of risk parity. So you wrote... Uh, two books on risk parity, risk parity and balancing asset allocation. And you have a risk parity ETF, which by the way, I'll mention the symbol is RPAR, R-P-A-R. You launched it in 2019 and you only have a billion dollars in it, unfortunately. <laughs> Very good job. Uh, but tell me about what, let's start at the beginning. Uh, pretend that I know nothing. What is risk parity? Uh, risk parity is basically just an investment framework that is based on having a well-balanced portfolio. And, and, and you can contrast that to most portfolios that are not very well balanced. And the reason they're not well balanced is because they are basically allocating to stocks and traditional bonds. And as I mentioned earlier, that, you know, that 60-40 portfolio would have done very poorly in the 70s. It didn't even do well in the 2000s. Stocks had a negative return in the 2000s. If you have a more balanced portfolio that incorporates things like inflation hedges, um, uh, you know, longer duration bonds that protect you more on the downside, uh, like in 2008 or, or Q1 of 2020, if you wrapped all that up into a balanced mix, that is basically a, a simple way of describing what risk parity is. It's just a more balanced portfolio. And if you do it right, you can build a more balanced portfolio that is going to be more resilient in, you know, economic downturns and inflationary environments that that portfolio can outperform equities 
over the very long run. You can look at it over 50 years, if you like, with less risk. And it can be done in a passive way that's not trying to time markets. And so to me, that's a very powerful investment framework, so especially is, today. Is it is it the evolution of, could I say this, is the evolution of um, MPT, modern portfolio theory meets efficient frontier? Um, or am I sort off base? of. Sort of. I mean, the I think the simplest way to describe it is it, it's actually helpful if you forget everything you know about investing. That's good. That's uh, okay. I'd, like, I'd like to do yeah. that. Yeah. So, so you start there, <laughs> blank slate. Okay, okay got it. Yep. So let's say let's say you're trying to build a portfolio that averages 10% a year. Mm-hmm. Okay. Conceptually, all you have to do is find maybe five or six different investments that average 10, but go up and down at different times. Okay. Meaning they don't necessarily zig and zag together. And if you put that portfolio together and you roughly equally allocate across those, you can get your 10 with a lot less risk than just being overly concentrated in any one asset class. So you have a fancy word called risk parity. See, I'm a simple guy. You know what I call this? My flower garden theory. Okay. See, what we do is if you have only planted impatience, you know what those are, right? They grow for mm-hmm. a few months and then they're just stems and dirt and nothing, right? Your garden right. is going to look great for a while, but then it's just going to look just horrible. Instead, what we want to plant is a full slew of annuals, semi-annuals, perennials. We want to have evergreens like money markets and cash positioning and bonds. And we want to have some roses in Heliconia. Something is blooming at any given time of the year so that the garden is always looking fresh. That's right. Yeah. And ideally what you want to think about is, is there something that can happen that can cause all of them to do poorly yeah. at the same time? That's the problem. It's called a hurricane in the garden. <laughs> it's That's called a right. hurricane or, or a stampede of, of wild buffalo. That's right. And so in, in, in <laughs> risk, in, in the world of risk parity, that is a massive tightening environment. Yep. So, so that's the that's the blizzard, right? That's the thing you can't really protect against, and it's because it causes all those things to do poorly at the same time. But then there's good news at the end of it, because now your interest rates are a lot higher, and meaning the ground is more fertile, and you're going to get outperformance in the future because of you're basically uh, raising the tide uh, for all those assets. Mm-hmm. Well, as long as, as long as you don't go in there and redo the garden. Right. But, and, and, but, but, but how does that change? Wait, wait, but how does it change? What happens? How do you figure that mm, that's just not a good, that particular flower or your particular asset class, you know, it's just, it's just, it's time to change. Cause I will tell you something. The problem is whenever that happens, miraculously, like a month later, it's the star of the show. That's right. Yeah. Yeah. I call that behavioral bias, meaning what you're supposed to do, this is rule number one in investing. And remember, you know nothing about investing. I know nothing. Rule number one is buy low, sell high. Uh, Everybody can understand that. Yeah. But what most people do, even professionals, is they buy high and sell low. Yeah. Over and over and over again. And it's because what happens is you're, it's, it's like you have two voices, one on your left shoulder, one on your right shoulder. The right shoulder is logic. It says buy low, sell high. This is cheap buy it. It's expensive. Sell it. The voice on the left is your emotions. When something is down, it says, this thing is going to keep going down. You got to get out of this. Right. When something is up, it's like, this thing's on fire. Everybody's buying it. You got to buy more. And those two are competing for your attention and for your action. And typically the stronger the emotional impulse, the the less you should listen to it and vice versa. Mm. And most people follow their emotions. They make decisions based on emotions. And that's why the average investor does so poorly in the markets. They just buy low. I mean, I mean, they sell low consistently. Um, 
and buy high over and over and over again. And if you just avoid that, you're, you're, you're going to do fine. So the idea that, that risk parity, this, uh, this idea of having multiple, we'll call it positioning asset classes that can do well over time, um, is, is, is there, there must be room for things. And I think we talked about this earlier, um, offline, but some, the, there's more of a ability to put in things inside the portfolio for inflation protection or to be uh, non-correlated or doesn't act according to every, everything. It doesn't move up and down with everything else, right? So alternative asset classes of some sort, um, where do you find those kinds of positions? That I think is one of the hardest things for investors. Investors could find stocks, they could find bonds, they could find mutual funds and things like that a lot of times. But what about the alts? Yeah, I mean, there's different categories of alts. So for example, one alts that anybody can buy that is missing from most portfolios is commodities. Mm. And commodity, if you, this is a really interesting statistic. If you just look at commodity stocks, these are commodity producer equities. Uh, you know, that, that index has outperformed global equities by two or 3% a year for 50 years, but it just went through a 10 year bear market and it's really missing in portfolios. And that's a great inflation hedge. It, it would have done really well in the seventies. And so having, taking a portion of your equities and converting them to commodity equities gives you significant diversification. And that's really an alternative. Gold is another one. You know, in the last 50 years, gold is only about a percent a year behind equities since we came off the gold standard. It's a great diversifier. Uh, Inflation-linked bonds, you know, instead of just having nominal bonds uh, in your portfolio, bonds that just pay you a fixed interest rate, you can incorporate inflation-linked bonds that pay you a lower interest rate plus inflation uh, to hedge against the risk of inflation. Those are, those are very simple things. You could categorize them as alts that are liquid. You can buy index funds for them. It's just a very easy allocation. So about the inflation link, are you talking about tips? Yes. Because interestingly, tips had a crappy ass year last year. Yep. You got, I mean, terrible. Real, real yields. Yeah. Real yields went up faster than ever. Right. You would think that you would have gotten something out of it. I mean, I bonds, which I talked to a lot of people about, you're limited to $10,000 per person per year. But still, you were able to get like 9% on the last clip, on the yep. last, uh, I think, 8.5 or something like that, on the December uh, yeah. one. Yeah, if, if it had a higher limit, that, yeah, we, that's we, that probably was the best 10, thing. You could, right, right. Yeah, I know. Yeah, I yeah. mean, we'd all be out of business. Right. clients would 100% of the money yeah. in that. Yeah. It has no, no inflation risk, no credit risk, right? Exactly. No, it's great. I told people, I said, go, go, go. They're like, what do you mean? I'm like, listen, we can't do it for you. You got to go to the treasury site. You got to do it directly. I can't. I can't do anything. You know, That's it's right. just go do it. It's but it's but it's a little known secret, by the way. Alex, you may know this. Uh, you can actually put more than ten thousand dollars per year in. Do you know how to do, do you know how to do that? I think you need different entities. No, right? well, you do ten thousand dollars a year per person. Yeah. If you overfund your tax return, you know, and over, overfund. Excuse me. You overfund your tax estimates. Pardon me. Okay. okay. So let's say uh, you do everything right and you're at a zero line, but you say you put an extra ten thousand dollars in for whatever reason. I don't know why that at the end of the year, you get a tax refund back. You can actually take up to $5,000 and put it into the I-bonds. <laughs> that's a good deal. So there you go. I mean, that's kind of a, so now you can, you're up to 15,000. Now I don't know how it works if you're married, if both of you get to do, I don't know how that works exactly, but it's probably just for one person. But It's a great deal. Yeah. But even, even, even if you just buy a long, you know, long dated tips bond, you know, it had a negative yield for so many years. Now it's like at 15 year highs. 
you know, you can get, you know, one and a half, two percent plus inflation. Mm-hmm. At, at some point, you almost don't need a diversified portfolio. You can, if you can get CPI plus four or three guaranteed, that's a pretty good outcome. Listen, the best thing that happened, the most eye opening, shocking thing was when I saw actually client portfolios getting interest on their cash this year. Right. And last year, I was like, wow, look at that. That's something you don't yeah. see every day. Yeah. And now yeah, you got to start putting that into the calculation of uh, taxation of the portfolio, right? You know, for years, yes. you're like, all right, whatever you got in cash doesn't matter. There's not, no taxes, no nothing. You know, why right. do we have cash? There's certain reasons for dollar cost averaging purposes, for liquidity purposes. There's a lot of different reasons. You know, we tried to bump it up a little bit. We went from, you know, 0.1 to 0.2 in, in, in some <laughs> positions, you know? Um, but that, yeah, pretty amazing because that is a good point. You can get 4.2% on some money markets right now. We're laddering bonds for clients at what, four, seven on average for under six months. So when we have these kinds of environments, obviously it, it, it's, it's again, it's one of those things. It's like a, it's a sale on the store of a new flower variety that you add to your, your, your flower garden, right? Or said differently in your parlance, it's another position that you pick up for your risk parity portfolio. Yeah, but, and, and the, the thing there is, that's basically the good news that came out of what happened last year is you had rates just going up significantly over a short period of time. And now, like if you think about a year ago and somebody came to you and said, you know, I want to build a diversified portfolio and, and I want to earn 8% a year for the next 20 years. Cash at zero, eight is a tough hurdle. Mm-hmm. But now if you can get four out of cash, four to five, yeah. eight is a lot easier because it, it, you know, everything prices off of cash and the expected return of all assets is much higher today. So, so you basically reset the baseline. So I have a question. If you list that many of your portfolios, money, not yours, but many other portfolios you see come in and that you talk about and you look at and, and some surveys that are done that don't have really a lot of inflation type hedging going on with their portfolio. The question is with the, with the current feds aggressive stance, right. On fighting inflation. Um, would you suggest that you bump up those positions as a tactical or shorter term uh, uh, type of investment, or is it still something that's core? Yeah, I think it's core all the time. And the reason I say that is because you have to look at the the trends in inflation, but also, and this is the part that many people miss, is you have to look at what the market is already discounting. And, and the market is basically saying, you know, this is the bond market and even the stock market, that inflation is going to quickly revert back to its, you know, 2%-ish type of range. And, and the key is, Will it go down to two or even if it goes down, but if it goes to four, that's an upside surprise to inflation. And that is bad for stocks and bonds. And so having an inflation hedging component in your portfolio basically insulates you against that risk. And I think you should always have that because the market is going to be right and wrong about half the time. Uh, It's going to overshoot and undershoot about half the time versus what's discounted. And and so you got to be at least neutral which I, I define as half your portfolio in inflation hedged assets all the time. And today you may even want to overweight that because the risk is probably to the upside that inflation surprises. Hmm. Interesting. So um, the, the uh, I guess, the, the, again, back to the alternative strategies now, because we really flush that out, right? W- what are we looking at? We got fund to funds or you have, other things besides materials and what else is non-correlated? Bitcoin? We're going to talk about Bitcoin? Oh, God. I hope not. 
Yeah. I mean, that, that's, that's more, you know, a risk on risk off type of trade it, on, on steroids. Mm. Uh, I think that the way to think about it is kind of going back to your, your flower garden. What are the things that will cause all those flowers to do poorly at the same time? And what can you own that is actually resilient to that? So I, th I think things like private real estate is a, is a different return stream from traditional stocks and bonds and mm -hmm. other inflation hedges. Uh, private credit is, is interesting. Um, private equity is going to be more correlated to equity. Um, but, but there are areas within there where there's less, uh, efficiency. So there's more potential to, to generate skill-based returns. Um, and then there are things that are just naturally uncorrelated, um, that are, you know, not the easiest for, uh, most investors to access, but if you're a qualified purchaser, you know, 5 million plus, you can access things like healthcare royalties or life settlements or, uh, there are, there's helicopter financing. There's a lot of different return streams that are truly uncorrelated that really have nothing to do with the economy or, you know, whether markets go up or down. And the nice thing about private equity is they price whatever the hell they want to price the thing at. So therefore it could stay up forever. Yeah. Until, until, <laughs> until you finally really get things liquidation. Get right. Yeah. Things can get really good or really bad. Right. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> that's right. What's the value has that hasn't changed. They laid off half their employees. Yeah. But the value is still, you know, a hundred dollars a share of the private equity deal. How's that? Yeah, eh, yeah. You know? that eventually catches up. Yeah, you can't, you can't hide forever. But at least it stays it stays constant on the balance sheet for a client when they look at it in terms of, the, you know, because they'll go directly and get that. And a lot of people come to me and they, they bring this like, hey, look at this thing, how well it's done. I'm like, I don't, how do you know this? How do you know what it's done? I don't understand, you know? So, well, I get great letters from the private equity guys, you know, every six months. Uh, what else do you think is out there that we need to be aware of right now? What's lurking under the bed? What's uh, the boogeyman saying? What, what are we What are we looking at? Um, I think the kind of the big thing to think about just high level for this year is the big surprise last year was significant tightening. Few expected. The market certainly didn't expect it. So that's what moved markets. Now you're going to get some impact from that tightening. You see mortgage rates have doubled. Uh, you're seeing layoffs. Um, and so that the impact is what is going to result in market movements this year. And as I mentioned, the market is basically discounting inflation to be two-ish percent and growth to be two to three percent, mm -hmm. and 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 so what really matters is how that how that transpires versus that discounting. So there's a lot of risks that you, you're going to overshoot or undershoot those expectations, and that is going to move markets. So last year was defined by tightening, hard to diversify against that. You saw, you know, most things went down uh, outside of those things that are truly uncorrelated. This year, I think diversification is going to work a lot better because you'll get broader broader um, divergence in asset class returns. So the thing that I would really focus on if I was an investor is I'd study how diversified is my portfolio. And you can't judge that by the number of line items. Mm -hmm. You could have 20 line items, but 19 of them go up and down together. Right. That's not right. diversification. Right. So that that's the thing that I would really focus on. And most people completely miss that. Mm. Interesting. Well, I appreciate it. We're going to put the information on uh, how to get in touch with you as well as how to get your books, Risk Parity and Balanced Asset Allocation. Uh, over on the show notes for episode 799. You don't have a Twitter account, do you? Uh, not yet, but I what do you mean not yet. What are you waiting for? It's, it's, what, what does that mean? <laughs> what does that mean? You, you know, social media. You have a phone? You have an iPhone, right? Or a phone? Yes, I, I have a phone. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. If you think about it, it's an interesting thing, this social media. Yeah, if you Check it out. Yes, I, I, I've, heard of, I've heard about it. <laughs> All right. Uh, Alex Shahidi from Evoke uh, Advisors. Thanks for joining me. I appreciate you coming on board today. We'll do it again soon. My pleasure. Thank you so much. And there you go. It's a wrap.
Good information. Keeping it simple, talking about things like risk parity. Back to the flower garden discussion as well and trying to give you what we can in this very volatile environment of how you can diversify your portfolio right from a lot of different angles. There's a lot of different ways to do the same thing, a lot of different ways to make sure that you are sitting pretty for your future. So I thank Alex for all the time they spent with us. Go over to thedisciplineinvestor.com. You'll find out more information, where to click. Obviously not on his Twitter account that doesn't exist, but on his LinkedIn or wherever else that you can find him as well as the direct links to uh, his books, Risk Parity and Balanced Asset Allocation. Thanks for joining me this week and every week. I'm Andrew Horowitz. I'm out. See you next week. Nothing discussed in this podcast should be considered a recommendation to buy or sell any security. Past performance is no indication of future results. In addition, the information presented is not intended to be used as a sole basis of any investment decisions, nor should be construed as advice designed to meet the individual needs of any particular investor. Nothing herein constitutes legal, accounting, or tax advice or individually tailored investment advice. Remember, investing involves substantial risk. Past performance is not a guarantee of future results and a loss of original capital may occur. No one receiving or accessing this information should make any investment decision without first consulting his or her own personal financial advisor and conducting his or her own research and due diligence, including carefully reviewing any applicable prospectuses, press releases, reports, and other public filings of the issuer of any securities being considered. Please consider this for educational purposes only. As always, use your best judgment when investing. Horowitz & Company, Inc. is registered as an investment advisor with the state of Florida and conducts business in other states where it is properly registered or is excluded from registration requirements. Registration does not imply any level of skill or training. Advertisements are not related to the host or affiliates and are not considered recommendations by the host of the show or any affiliates of Horowitz & Company.